Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself and Mike Finch and Professor Ross Tucker. We've had a bit of a break as uh, I've been involved in... Uh, what they say is the toughest mountain bike stage race in the world. I'll tell you more about that in a few moments. And uh, there's some fresh news from the world of world athletics, which we're going to be getting into today. Of course, the debates around that are raging on Twitter and all the social medias. And uh, we'll talk about some of the decisions made by world athletics um, in a few moments. And we've got a special guest, of course, uh, our usual guest, our most prominent, our most important guest, Sean Ingle from The Guardian will be joining us as well to give us some of his insight into that. But let's kick off today's episode as we usually do with a caught my eye. And I'm going to start my caught my eye. I was at the recent Absa Cape Epic, which is a eight day mountain bike stage race here in the Western Cape. And uh, as I said before, it's sort of uh, promoted as the toughest mountain bike stage race in the world. Now, Fair enough, I haven't done a lot of mountain bike stage races um, around the world and I haven't viewed many of them, but having experienced the last week and I've been commentating as the race announcer at that event now for just on eight years and every single year that this event happens, I think to myself, I will never do this because <laughs> it is it is super hard. I mean, we usually have some days when it's really, really hot, almost to the point where you think maybe they should stop the race. This year, they had rain on the Friday, the last day being on the Sunday. On the Friday before, we had torrential rains with trails that were super slick. The back markers are literally walking the entire course, which is around 73 kilometers, out there for nine hours at a time. The average back marker at the Absa Cap Epic is finishing every stage between seven and nine hours every day. The front markers are half that time, four mm. hours plus. They're averaging 25 k's an hour. But what's fascinating about this is that the, not only is this massive disparity, but the conditions for the people at the back compared to the conditions for those in the front are very different when it rains. Because if you go through when it's when, when you're the first riders through, the, the trails are not too bad. Well, they're still slippery and nasty, but you've also got the skills to get through them. Yeah. By the time the back markers have come through, those trails are impossible. So as the stage finished, what they do is they have this term called maximum stage time, which is uh, not cutoff. You're not allowed to say cutoff as an answer. You say maximum stage time. They gave maximum stage time at seven hours and 15 minutes initially. They extended it to eight hours. And at eight hours, there was probably a couple of hundred people that hadn't finished. They come across the line five, 10, 15 minutes after the after the, this maximum stage time is over and there's huge controversy. The commissaires are there cutting boards saying you're out of the race, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and there is swearing and goings on and even us as commentators sitting in the commentary booth, we're blamed. I've got wives shouting at me that their husbands have given up their lives for this thing and they're gonna be suing us and all sorts of expletives have been used. So the next day they decide they're gonna extend it by another 45 minutes, which means the hundred or so that we're going to get out of the race, it's down down to nine that don't make it. So 
there's a change in that. There was much debate within our commentary box. Many of us have been involved in the EPIC for many years saying, should they have extended it straight away? It prevented all the drama of the finish. And by relinquishing their initial decision, was that a good decision for the race secondhand? Because they basically went back on what they were going to say initially. But what, so, what's the rationale for a cutoff in, a, in an event that you pay to enter? Well, the rationale I mean, it's is... It's not like there are road closures. Like if, no. if, it's a, if it's a marathon, a city marathon, Cape Town Marathon, yeah, you mm. want to say you can't be out there for nine hours because now we've got to mm. close the roads from sunrise till sunset. Get, I get that. But why, why have a trail race that you've got to then... Because essentially what you want to do is you, the brand values of the Cape Epic is that it's tough that it's tough to, to finish and that not everybody does finish it because if it if it became too easy, mm. I don't think you'd have the same value towards that medal. So that was the big decision. The Epic is known as a tough event. By completing the event and getting that medal, you are, you know, you're a tough person. There's no doubt that I wouldn't even attempt it. It's really tough. They've got 1,500 athletes riding this year and they want to make sure that medal means something. Once they get rid of those cutoffs or maximum stage times, it makes it easier. But also, if you do that, you guys are going to be riding in the dark, actually, because they're out there from 7 o'clock in the morning right through till 6 o'clock at mm. night. And by half past 6, it's very dark. So logistically, you can't do it either because it just gets too dark. But I, I get why you need to have these cutoffs because you do need to put a line <coughs> in the sand and say, look, you've got to get up to a certain level. The argument is, what what is maximum stage time? Mm. What, what should it be? Let's say, for instance... A, the pros are riding four hours, it should it be double the pros time. Sometimes it's double the pros time plus another hour. Mm. But on a day like this, when the conditions are vastly different, then maybe there should be more time given. But how much more time given? What is a reasonable cutoff in that time? So it becomes a very interesting debate. And for the race director, Katie Sack, it's a really difficult decision because she's stuck in this place where she has to uphold the, the brand values of the Epic as being a tough, hard event that's difficult to complete. Mm. But also keep in mind that she has a group of riders out there have given their lives to this event for the last six months. And maybe unfairly, they get cut off because of conditions beyond anybody's control. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah interesting. I mean, I wonder if what, what would happen if anyone listens to this, they can look into it. If you said the 500 finisher. Because then it's kind of like your median mean time. Almost. Comes like devil take the hindmost in track cycling. <laughs> yeah, everybody's racing. So your five hundred finisher sets the reference time, and then it's fifty percent slower than the five hundred. Because I could <laughs> yeah, see how maybe. that would at least then you sort of accommodate the the turnover of the course, you know, the, yeah, the worsening of the course. But only on wet days, because to... on, on a normal day, if it's dry, that that becomes insignificant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is. It's it's very much a subjective decision. At the end of the day, I think. Mm. And um, but again, is the arguments pro and against those decisions? And every year, there's always a story. It's either too hot, and it's a very hot stage. So people say, well, they should be given more time because it's too hot. On this occasion, it was too much rain. So when is it too hot that they should have an extra hour? When is it too, you know, like it's one of those decisions which I, I wouldn't envy being the race director, put it that way. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and the second thing which was interesting, and I and it's something that in my experience of being on the Cape Epic, when you have a lot of people in one place, there's a village. It's not just the riders, it's the supporters, it's the media, and they all sort of travel around in, you know, in this big sort of moving circus of 
Germs. logistics of germs. <laughs> so what happens pretty much every second year or more <laughs> is there is a outbreak of some sort of stomach problem. And this year it was pretty severe. Talking to the medical team that was there and they reckoned that a good 75% of the village had been into the medical facility to seek help. And some of the top riders had suffered from it. And rumors was that um, Nina Schurter's partner was struggling on the last day from a stomach problem. Mm. Still wait, not con- haven't confirmed that. But we had it as commentary team. One of our commentators is on a drip a number of times. And the only thing I would, when I look at this is I think, well, Back in the COVID days, <laughs> there was protocols around these sort of things where everybody's wearing masks, there were sanitizing stations in everywhere. At the Epic, you have open food, you have buffets for the dinners at night, there is lots of shared facilities and ablutions and that sort of thing. So the chances of a bug getting into the system are obviously very big. Mm. And the only thing I would think that Epic need to look at closely is to have a sort of a, a sanitizing protocol. In other words, what can we do to reduce the chance of bug spreading in this in this moving like, circus of, of the, the, people? The problem they've got is that there's too many choke points. Like there's too many bottlenecks. In fact, if you were to design a circumstance to create super spreader of a virus, it would be something like Epic because you'll have yes. hundreds of people all eating from the same area, using the same sanitation facilities, washing up toilets, yep. plus they're immune compromised. I mean, there's no way. The only I reckon... Even sanitation wouldn't help unless they had four times the size of buffet and four times as many toilets and so forth to try and reduce the number of choke points. You know, That's- so, so, you don't, so in other words, what you're saying is that the, the difference between it of the difference reducing the chances of a virus or a bug getting around the village would take many more logistics than I, just having sanitizer stations. Look, I wasn't. It looks to me though like it's a space issue, right? Yeah. So you can try and sanitize all you want, but when there's 200 people queuing at one table to get their beef stroganoff or whatever it is. Yes. <laughs> pretty much like what it is. Potatoes, pastas, and some, some meat. Yeah. Like if there's one person in that 200, like it's going to get 20 of them. And then the next yes. day it's going to be 60 of them. And then it's going to be 140. So, 100%. So you had, I, I reckon you'd have to spread them out much more. Mm. It's just a... Maybe, I mean, it's maybe it's simple things like having screens in front of the food so people aren't yeah. breathing on it and talking over yeah. it. I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm not an expert in sanitation, but it does strike me that there is definitely an issue. And I'd be interested to know whether there are issues in other events like that, like Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, for instance, or the Andorra Cat, you know, those sort of events. Does it mm. happen in the Tour de France where the Tour de France circus moves through? But then again, those teams are in separate hotels. So there's probably not a lot of crossover there, you know. It is an issue, though. I remember we spoke to Adrian, sure. and he said keeping the team healthy is a big deal. And if a support staff, a mechanic gets sick, quarantine straight away. Cause, yeah. Because the immune suppression is the big issue by the third, fourth day, right? Yeah. I mean, even after one day, you're already immune suppressed, so you're completely defenseless. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that those little things should help a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Have have people cleaning. I don't know what it, I don't know what the bathroom facilities are like. No, look all. I mean, it's on on the face of it, it's everything is clean. Um, I mean, bathroom facilities and the showers and that's been cleaned very regularly, and it's mm. it's it's done well in that respect. So you can't, just can't do it often enough. Though, but you, that's you know, the thing. You have to yeah, do it exactly. I, I think the big problem is just the amount of people. Exactly. The amount of food that's open. The density of it. Density of it yeah. is is because yeah, I've seen some data like Los Angeles Marathon, seventy odd percent of people report getting sick afterwards, and they mm. reckon it's the expo. Yeah. And then the same is true, not even in exercise, but when the when the Muslims go on pilgrimage 
then I've seen data there, 60, 70% of them get sick. Yeah. Just too many people in an area. It's, yeah. it's, it's, we know this by now. We're all expert virologists and immunologists. Yeah. <laughs> I do think there's some lessons from COVID that could be <coughs> implemented in that situation. I'm surprised that maybe they haven't. You still got them there. Because you, you yeah. put them in play. They would have had to put them there for 2020, yep. 21, yep. maybe even last year. Just keep going. Yeah. Semi protocols. So. I had it on television every morning. You know, I sit and work and it's on in the background. Yeah. Brilliant footage. And it's <laughs> cool, cool footage, drones and bikes. And I think every year I look at it and I say, that looks ace. Closed trails, <laughs> navig- no need to worry about getting lost. There's support, there's water. This looks great. And then I see the finish line and I think, no chance. Because they show these aerial shots of these, it's like a grid of tents, 50 yeah. by 50. That's yeah. what it looks like. I mean, it's probably not 50, 30 by 30, whatever it is, mm. 1,500 people. And I think, goodness me, imagine eight hours on the bike, muddy, tired, cold, and then you've got to share. Oh, no, no thanks. Yeah, the, the I'd rather, rather go take my chances getting lost than do that. <laughs> the irony is that um, we often asked as announcers in the morning how many people had spent the night in the tents when they had the rains, and it was less than... 25% of the field that was in the tents. So what's happened as a result, even though your entry includes your tent, many of the riders choose to stay in B&Bs mm. and Airbnbs and hotels and that sort of thing, um, not in the tent village. And I, and I think exactly for that reason, you can't do that. Mm. And it's costs a lot more money to do that. But if you're out there doing this race, you want to make sure that you're as comfortable as possible. If I was in Chabot, for those who don't know, it's an hour for me, I'd drive home. Yes. I drive home to my house in Rwanda, I sleep in my own bed and wake up the next morning at 5 a.m. rather yeah. than rather than do that. But yeah. I mean, it, it looks like a cool event and you never say never, but I, I don't know. I think <laughs> I can think of better ways to spend a week and a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's every year it's full up and every year they are completely booked up. So there is still a big audience of people who take on the challenge of it. And I admire it. I, I've got a huge amount of respect for everybody does an epic. I think it's an amazing event to complete and it's not within my realms of possibility. I don't have that ability to suffer for eight days on the bike. I love riding too much to suffer. Mm. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I certainly admire those that have done it for sure. Mm. What's on your, up your uh, street this, this week? Yeah, it was a pretty vibrant and busy week on Patreon. <laughs> Thanks very much, all of you, for your engagement. I posted like like a London bus. None came along and then three arrived at once. So I posted <laughs> actually three newsletters last week because a lot wow. was happening. On Patreon? Yeah. Wow. So this is a Patreon. You can go sign up there, by the way. I was going to say, good reason to sign up to our Patreon channel. Yeah. So Patreon, you just for the monthly donation, which is the equivalent of one, two, or three cups of coffee, yep. depending where you buy your coffee, you can show your support and then get involved in that community. I do my best to get a newsletter out of things that catch my eye that don't make the podcast, sometimes mm-hmm. that do. And then there's some discussion. And this this week was really good. Remember last time we spoke about Dick Fosbury and his legacy yeah. having changed high jump? Died at the age of 76. That's right. Joshua Stacy got in touch with another technique that didn't catch on. This time it was in long jump. And I'll post a video that you can see it. But it's by a guy called Tuariki Delame, who you've yeah. never heard of. Because unlike Fosbury, <laughs> he didn't become the innovator that changed the sport because they outlawed his method. But it was basically a forward somersault long jump into the pit. Okay. <laughs> so that's exactly as you're imagining it. So run I'm up to the board. I'm definitely going to look at this video. And then feet overhead. And then, and apparently this adds to your distance. Presumably the rotation allows you to elevate your center of mass and therefore go further before you come to earth or something. So, so you're essentially diving over the bar head, head first. 
Yeah, and then rotating and then landing on your feet again. It, it's amazing. I'll post a video of it and you yeah, can I'll see it. Yeah, I've seen that. There yeah. it is, yeah. I'm, the mic's watching this right now. Yeah. And there's an interview with a guy who did it and that's, that's the technique. So it literally is sort of going over, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It, it's a great technique to look at. Quite spectacular, actually. It would be good for TV. Yes. Maybe. It, it, I suppose it, poses, it, it raises that question that we talked about when we discussed um, Dick Frosby's passing that... Um, you know, if somebody came up with a better technique, are there rules now which say you're only allowed to do jump over the bar in a certain way? And we we actually didn't know the answer. To no, that not for not for the high jump. You can get over the bar any how you like. Like the swimming stroke, all the all those strokes have rules except freestyle. That's what's called what it is, right? Right. Um, but I I genuinely don't know. I mean, I, yeah. in other sports as well, there is another one that then came up in chatting with Josh, and this is this is why you joined Patreon and why I like it. <laughs> Where I said, you know, there was a f- in basketball, the free throw is done overhanded. Yes. There have been a couple of really good articles, and I'll post links to them. And one was actually a podcast where Malcolm Gladwell discussed this. But apparently the accuracy if you throw it underarm is better than mm-hmm. if you throw it over. But nobody does it because they're too embarrassed to do it. <laughs> and so there's a social pressure that's actually stopped the technique from being in theory, and maybe it's disputed whether it's better or not. Because the best free throw shooters are hitting like nine out of 10 consistently. Yeah. Mm. So maybe you can't really measure the benefit from being underarm, but some of the free throw shooters are poor and mm. underarm that might be 10% better. Yet no one's taken it up because despite the best efforts of a couple of people, and that's what this podcast and article were about, they couldn't persuade people to do it because they looked and felt too foolish to try. <laughs> it's a bit like mm-hmm. baseball and softball. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, actually. <laughs> Softball's like and, a, a slight, it's like baseball and Prozac. <laughs> um, softball is. <laughs> well, it, it kind <laughs> of looks know. like baseball, but it's under, underarm, and it's, you know, obviously focused very much on... Well, have you I mean, seen there the, are very good Have you seen the speed players. of a softball pitch? Yes, they can. There, pitch it's right up there. It's yeah, the same no. speed, right? Yes, that's true. And then there was a famous, I forget, David Epstein told the story of a famous baseball batter yeah. who couldn't hit a softball. Really? Yeah. The, the world's best, one of the best, anyway, I suppose, woman pitches, pitched to him, and he couldn't hit it. And the lesson was that it's the pattern recognition of the shoulder, the elbow, and so forth. And if it's unfamiliar to you, you can't, just because mm. you can see a ball doesn't make you a good hitter. Oh, wow. Because you're not watching the ball. Yeah. That's the lesson there, was you're watching the whole picture. Where's the left shoulder, the right shoulder, the mm, elbow mm, relative mm. to the arm and so forth. It's the same in cricket. Batsmen don't watch the ball. They watch something other than the ball mm. to pick up the length and the line. Mm. And they actually hit the ball before they've registered where it is. Yeah. <laughs> Consciously, anyway. So anyway, so... so I hope I'm not going to get no hate mail from the uh, softballers now. <laughs> yeah, that's... Please uh, address apologies. those on Patreon to Mike <laughs> to, French, not to Mike. me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was really interesting with Josh. He also, he also commented on something else that's really interesting, and that's workers' compensation for injuries and after retirement, something that came up in the context of a story we'll get to shortly with doping and... New Zealand runner so yeah Josh that was that was really handy and it's definitely we have to discuss that at some point um, medical claims and, and workers compensation claims in athletes yeah yeah so that was that was really cool and then another one who's really been active was Gareth D mostly on the Zane Robertson story and if you go read my post on Patreon you'll see him in the comments but remember last time we spoke about esports and doping he actually sent a link on the use of Adderall which is the ADHD drug and that they reckon would be the main drug in an e-sports athlete when that makes its way into the Olympic Games yeah. for attentional focus. And we were so, trying to figure out what we were so well. that's, the, that's the one. Yeah. 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 Uh, Travis Hawkins got in touch. This was a while back, Travis. My apologies, but the opportunity didn't present itself. 
he alerted me when was the hawaii ironman october last year remember we sp- uh, it's later in the year so i think it's yeah october november Remember we spoke about that and a norwegian Iden had won it mm-hmm. with a 236 marathon fastest marathon ever at that race yeah wearing a pair of shoes from on that had a massively thick midsole in fact illegally yes. thick by the standards of world athletics and we spoke about that because triathlon didn't have a policy yes they now do so obviously in the aftermath of that world triathlon has gone and moved to close that loophole and that happened in november last year and then apparently ironman followed that in february so now the shoes you see a triathlete racing in are the same meet as, the same as, specs as, as the world shoes athletics, athletics yeah. sit down. but in this race in abu dhabi earlier this year the Norwegian Federation themselves protested Iden's shoes. Now, that's one of two things. Either they're testing the waters to try and find out as a federation whether their athlete is running in legal shoes because he intends to run in them. I don't know why they wouldn't just ask. I mean, you don't have to file an official protest to do that, but maybe yeah. they want to learn what that looks like. <laughs> or there's been a fallout between Iden and some of the other Norwegians and they're actually working against the interest of their own <laughs> Of their own athletes. I don't know. The plot the plot thickens with these shoes. Um but apparently I guess in this instance the the conclusion is that this shoe, it's called the On Cloud Try One, was then sent they asked Iden for it, they sent it off to World Athletics and they say, Oh no, this shoe's on our list. So they've got a list of approved shoes. Mm. And this shoe does meet the specs, and therefore Iden will continue to run in this shoe, which is not the shoe that he won that Ironman race in, in Hawaii, because that shoe very clearly was was illegal. So <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. Now it's like it's a I always think one. it begs the question as to how far can you push the shoe technology, even if it's illegal, to help you run. I know Adidas, for instance, have a shoe that is put on the market. It's not a legal shoe in terms of water athletics, but you can buy it, and it allows you obviously to have more benefit from the foam. But I mean, we don't know the answer to this, but it is fascinating to think. How far can you go? I mean, is, is the higher the foam the, the, the and the more the carbon going to make you faster? And faster? There must be a, a limit to when that becomes a disadvantage. Mm. You know, well, I mean, the, remember the policy for world athletics is the thickness of the midsole. Yeah. So presumably that's what they're measuring. They have got other policies that the carbon has to be one plate, non-overlapping plates and so mm. forth. Mm. But that would require opening the shoe opening up. Opening the shoe, yeah. And, unless there's, and maybe that's why they wanted an official protest is because then that could happen. In mm. the end, I'd sounds like it wasn't because they said they sent the shoes back and mm. I don't think they sent the shoe back in six pieces it was two yeah so yeah, <laughs> yeah just interesting about how this all plays out and even the fact that you can lodge a protest against another athlete's shoes I wonder how often that happens all oh. things to wonder in a new in a new era of shoes where <laughs> well, if shoes you've lost you're looking shoes. for any gap <laughs> I mean there's no doubt you'd be, you'd be at, the, at the limit right yeah if the limit's 40 which I think it is yeah, then so you'd want to be at thirty nine point nine nine. Yeah, or forty point zero forty forty point zero zero five. So yes, that exactly. Not, yeah, exactly. Round it down. Yeah, yeah. That's where we are. So yeah, thanks, Travis, for that. And let's we'll keep an eye on that. I'm sure Travis will let me know if anything comes up in that respect. And then there was, as I said, it was busy on Patreon because I posted links to a this our two main stories of the day, which are the. World Athletics Trance Guidelines, and then a doping case of Zane Robertson, which we'll, which we'll get on to next. There was another one, Brendan Krill, who mailed a while back about artificial turf and the risk of cancer, which is something, I don't know if you heard that, have you heard that? The little rubber yeah. pellets, they reckon, in the artificial turf <coughs> have been said to increase the risk of cancer. Wow. I'd, that's, that's a big question, right? And I haven't read enough to even 
say yes, no, or maybe. So therefore, sure. I'm not going <laughs> to deal with it now. But Brendan, I'm aware, and I want to look into it before I give you an answer on the show. Sure. Yeah. Interesting to see what researchers brought up that story. Whether well, it's just in some theory or whether there is some Brendan research. posted a link to an article on baseball oh, and yeah. baseball players who've reported an, a startlingly high number of these cases. Sure. You always have to be so careful. It's the same as with COVID and myocarditis. Is the moment there's one, everyone yeah. starts looking for the next one. And so you get this uh, confirmation bias in yes. your reporting. Yeah, you get what you look for. Exactly. You, mm. you put a spotlight on it and you find it. There's one, there's one, there's yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. The next thing you think it's real when actually it's been there all along and it's no different to what it used to be. So mm. it's complicated stuff, but it's I've noted it and I would like to discuss it at some stage, but it's not going to be today. We want to get into the meat of this podcast. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And so thank you very much to our Patreon uh, supporters. And uh, don't forget, you can uh, get onto Patreon, look at uh, patreon.com and look for the Science of Sport podcast and you can become part of our community with a couple of clicks of your mouse. Anyway, so let's move on to a story which uh, hit the headlines last week, that of the New Zealand runner Zane Robertson, who was uh, a very accomplished runner. I think he was the record holder of a various distance in New Zealand, including the marathon. I think he finished bronze. He was the bronze medalist at the Commonwealth Games. And I think he was famous for having uh, been spending a lot of time in Kenya with his brother, where he trained with the Kenyans. And basically, he went there with the idea that he was going to be if he trained with the Kenyans, he's going to be as good as the Kenyans. I mean, he actually mm. finished um, at the Commonwealth Games when he finished third. He finished behind two Kenyans, which kind of proved his theory. <laughs> but now the story is he's obviously been caught <coughs> and um, caught with EPO. But the story gets oh, interesting yeah. because a lot of stuff happens after he tries to defend himself. Yeah, so Zane Robertson's one half of the Robertson twins, and, yes. and they're not not just some of their time in Kenya, all of it. They moved there, literally. They left home to go live in Kenya and Ethiopia, actually. That'll become relevant in a moment. Um, and yeah, he was he was a very successful runner, not not your ma- major marathon winning guy, but a 2 yeah. eight, a sub-60 half, good. But good. the best in New Zealand. Oh, yeah, by a long way. Yeah. Like outside of Africa. And his brother was a multiple best. record holder over distances, mm. including the 10,000. Yeah, so they were good runners. And then yeah. their little Kenyan experiment, let's call it East Africa, because a lot of it was in Ethiopia. Zane Robertson married an Ethiopian runner as well. Um, so they, they made a life there, like yeah. literally relocated. They failed a test in May. The result was announced in September. And then. That was after a race in the Great North Run? Uh, Manchester. Manchester Run. Manchester Run. And then he tried to cover it up. And so the cover-up, as they always say, is always worse than the crime. And I saw this headline on Twitter saying it's right up there with Tyler Hamilton's vanishing twin and so forth. And his cover-up basically was that he went to a clinic in Kenya to get a COVID vaccine, and they treated him for COVID with EPO instead. So he got the wrong thing for a disease he didn't have. And that was how he failed an EPO test. Now, that's wildly implausible (laughs) because it's not part of the treatment anyway. But what he had to do to try and back that up was provide documents from the hospital, and he fabricated those. So he literally forged documents, hospital records, confirming that he'd had it. He forged witness statements from the doctors at the hospital saying that he'd had this done. And the moment that that then gets presented to the authorities in defense of his sample result, they have to look into it. And, I mean, you can imagine how that goes. They say, can you send us the records? They say, we have no <laughs> we have no records. So it's, a, it's, it's quite an easy lie to yeah. be caught out in. And he got caught out. And when they confronted with him, he basically gave up the case. And as a consequence, gets four years for the doping and then three additional tacked on for the tampering and the 
evasion and the dis- dishonesty around it. So that's the end of his career. Um, and yeah, I mean, it'll go down in the top 10 of doping excuses. Yeah. But I think but he's been on a number of podcasts oh. and really has uh, sort of bled out his guts in front of everybody who wants to listen about right. the stories that and, and that, that why he's been, I mean, he hasn't, he's admitted to it now. Yes. Um, but he didn't initially, but he has been uh, getting a lot of exposure via various podcasts. Well, there's one. There's one called Runners Only with Dom two, Harvey. Yeah, but yes, I, I, didn't, I haven't heard a second yeah. one. I've heard yeah. this one, and I wanted to play a little section of that because what happened was then I posted this to the patrons, and then the very next day this podcast came out, mm. and I sent them a link. I said, okay, listen, this is straight from Robertson's mouth, and you can hear what he had to say. And then that kicked off a really good discussion on Patreon because when you listen to this guy talk, he is... He's suicidal. Mm. Now, many of you are sitting there going like, so what, serves him right, we're a doper. <laughs> a bit of sympathy, if not empathy, goes a long way. Mm. I mean, let me not put words in your mouth. I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic towards dopers. I mean, I, I think it's illegal and I don't like doping and I wish it didn't exist. But I understand why they do it. Yes. Because the system sometimes... No, it's which not, is, which it's is not what, right to say. Well, this is actually what he said. It. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And the this system is, forced him. Right. And so this this conversation about Zane Robertson having started on how about this for a crazy excuse? COVID vaccine. He gets EPO by accident. So then actually starts to become like a meaning of life debate <laughs> around yeah. why athletes dope and what should be done with them when they get caught. Because it, I, I challenge you, and I'll post this link. I challenge you to listen to this interview and not come away with it feeling like. Holy crap, this guy needs help badly, badly. Yeah. This is a rough situation for him at the moment. He is in a very, very dark hole. Yeah. And uh, and yes, it's it's a hole of his own making. I mean, he dug it for himself in a sense. But then you start listening. And if you really take the time to listen to him and understand, like, okay, it's not to condone the doping and especially not to condone the cover-up, but he is in a, he's in a desperate place. And he, the way he accounts for it, he, he says, I doped because I felt I had no choice. I was desperate. Sponsors had left him uh, before the doping. He had seen his race opportunities, appearance fees, and prize money dry up because of the lack of races around COVID. And the way he tells it is he doped as a consequence of that. Now, I'm not 100% sure I believe with this. It was one time and one time only thing. I subsequently read, incidentally, that he was tested in Manchester at the request of New Zealand anti-doping. So they basically asked the UK anti-dopers, please collect a sample from that guy, Zane Robertson. Mm. Now, if they were asking for that, it means they had some indication that it was worth targeting him. Was that a tip-off, an anonymous tip-off? Was it intel? Was it previous samples that looked suspicious? In which case, his defense is a little bit undermined. But in any case, he gets caught. Mm. And then, and then I guess the thing is, like, if you get caught like that, what would you do? Mm. Of course you lie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, For as long as you why, can. That's why everyone's always like, oh, they always just lie and deny it. Well, yeah, obviously you're going to do that. Yeah, just in case you get away with it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because well, if, if, if you didn't, you know where it's going. Mm. If, you, if, it, if you get caught in the lie, it's going to end in the same place. Mm. And that's, I wanted to actually play, I want to play you a clip. The next voice you hear will be Zane Robertson talking about that and the cover up and how, why he did it. So here's, here's straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. Yeah, because your, your banning sort of came in uh, two parts. There's uh, four years um, banning for the EPO and then additional years tagged on the end for trying to cover it up. Was, um, 
The, the cover-up idea, is that something that's commonly done in Kenya or was that your lawyer's idea? Was that your idea? Um, I, I want to take full blame for that as well. That was my idea. To, to me, four years is the same as eight. It's the end of my career. It, there's no coming back from this, and I knew. So I was just trying to save my ass, and I want people to think, like, really deeply think if, if that was them, if they had invested, like, 16 years into trying to be a professional, um, and they were going to lose their career because of one fuck-up, then... I, I guess that I guess a lot of people would try and save their ass, and that's just what I tried to do. So, as Ross, that kind of supports what you were saying. You know, mm. this—if somebody—if you get caught, you, you're going to deny it, and you're going to do everything you can to to until they until you can't deny it anymore. Really, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, especially because, and you'll hear shortly about how he the the things that led to him taking it in the first instance. It's not just. I want money, I'm going to dope. Mm. And then when you get caught for it, um, and, and again, I'm not, I don't know that he only doped one time. I'm sure it was, maybe it was one, one, one supply of EPO over a period. It's, I don't know. But like, we're, we're irrespective, when you get caught for it, like, you, of course you're going to defend yourself. Mm. It's human nature, mm. I think. You've already made the decision. You might as well double down on it. You know what I mean? yeah. So yeah. that yeah. was the problem for him. And now he looks foolish and guilty. But yeah. So the interesting thing about that podcast and probably the most enlightening thing is, that, and we always want to ask dopers this question, is why? Mm. And he does get into this, doesn't he? Yeah, although he, he stops short and you literally hear him saying he can't talk about it because of where he is and his circumstances because he's still in Kenya now. And, and that's what's frustrating about this. And okay, this podcast, is it's too soon after the, the announcement. He hasn't had the time. You listen to him and you'll know what I mean. He hasn't had the time to process all this and understand what he needs to do next with his life. Mm. At the moment, I don't think he can see beyond, like literally the next thing he's minute, right? Yeah. He's in that bad a space. But he talks about the culture of sport and he talks about getting his ass handed to him every week and not knowing why. But it's quite clear what the insinuation is. It's like, because I'm competing against dopers. And the only way I can do this is to dope as well. And that's the same message. Those of you who are sort of students of the sport, you'll know that's what compelled all those cyclists to dope as well. Even Armstrong. There's a, there's a moment at which these guys realize that this is the only way to stay in this. Now, some of them, it turns into greed and power. And and we know, let's not go down the Armstrong deviation yeah. gambit because yeah. that gets overplayed. But I think in the case of Robertson, listen to him and you'll understand. Like it's, and that's why I said earlier, I'm, I'm not sympathetic in the manner to excuse it, but I, I get it. Like I, if it was me, I don't know that I'd say no, mm. and then go back home to New Zealand where I've really got nothing because I've left it all behind. What so, are you gonna do? Yeah, <laughs> you want to yeah. provide for family and you want to have a life now. You're a thirty year old, twenty five, whatever it was when he started doping. Yeah. It goes back to a story that I, I think I've told on this podcast before. Where I, I spoke to a, a triathlete way back in late 90s and I said to him that if you were able to dope and win the first Olympic triathlon in Sydney and get the gold medal, and but you'd be dead by 40 because of the doping, would you do it? He said yes. Mm. And, and it, yeah, sh- it shows no. you that, that that's the mentality because when sport is everything, it is absolutely everything. And the case of Zan Robertson, it is everything for him. Yeah, and it's and it's in his case, I don't even think he was trying to win. I think he I think he legitimately um, 
wanted to just survive in the sport. You know, yeah. he, I think he saw the end. I saw. I think he's seen the end of his career imminent, and so on. And mm. and so he makes this decision, which is clearly the wrong one. Um, but 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 more to the point, it seems to me he knows a lot more about what's happening, and he's not saying it. Mm. And if he wants to come out of this thing on the other side, I would really hope that he does. Because mm. the moment he's so burdened by all the stuff that he knows, and he makes hints and he alludes to it many times in this podcast. And again, I'm going to share the link, listen to the whole thing if you can. He, he hints about it a lot, but he never says much. Yeah. So all you know is that this guy knows that doping was rife. He calls it part of the culture. And yet you aren't any wiser as to who's doing it how they're doing it and what they're doing and that this is him saying that in his own words oh well for my case it was very unique and it's very different um my my um it, my ex-wife and i we started talking about this thing a while like a few years back because i was frustrated with the sport already and it kept building the more the more I just saw and the more I learned and the more I knew people I used to know and I still know. And I just was getting my ass handed to me in every race. And I just kept asking how, and how is this possible? How is this happening now? And we started talking about it a lot. And um, one day she showed up back to the house with it and, and it stayed in the house for a very long time. And, when I moved, when I finally did move to Kenya, I, I moved with it. I moved with some of my stuff over the side. And it, again, it stayed in my house for a very long time until, yeah, I mean, but, but just in, in general, in general, day to day, I can't say too much because of my situation and where I live, man. And you, you understand that it's it's a culture of sport. That's it. Yeah, so I suppose if you're just reading between the, or listening between the lines, there it's fairly obvious what he's trying to say. And mm. uh, as you said before the, the interview, so yeah, it's a rare insight where you see somebody being as frank as he is, as much as you you want him to say more. It's rare that you even get that much out of athletes that mm. don't they don't want to talk about. Um, well, and I don't really understand why. I often think, is there a mafia element to it? Is there a fear element to it? Or is it just a reputational well, element? So part of it is, part of it is because you're going to bring other people down. I've spoken to a couple of former convicted dopers. Yeah. And they don't want to tell the, their truth because they know who else it's going to sink. Yeah. And they are motivated by like almost a decency to not be mm. the guy who sinks the whole ship. Mm. <laughs> I'd rather sink myself. You know, I'll walk the plank if it saves mm. the ship. And so that, that's that's literally, and in this case, and, and we'll play the last clip you'll hear from this, is his brother is now furious with him. And Gareth D. Thanks sent me a link. Again, I'll share that. His, his brother is livid mm. because he now looks tainted by association. And in fact, I've seen a couple of things. They're twins. One was doping. They ran the same time. Therefore, either they're both doping or the doping didn't work. <laughs> that's the, and that's the kind of thing. Like, how can these guys, as close as they are, how can one dope and not the other? They're twins. Yeah, Surely they do everything together. Now, I don't know about uh, J uh, Jake Robertson's past and, and what he might be, but yeah. he's now... Well, they come from a very poor background. Relatively, yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. So, so Zane, I think, is holding on to certain things because he, of where he lives, he's maybe he's fearful, mm. but I think he's also concerned about how it's going to impact people around him, even if they were doping. I think he still doesn't want to do that to them, you know? So mm. he's in that dilemma. And I don't think he's... 
I don't think he's intellectually processed what he needs to say next. And so when you listen to this, you're hearing emotional reaction, which is where he's at. And, and no more than this next. And this is the last clip we'll play on this. It's, it's, it's rough. Um, I'm trying to deal with this in the best way possible right now. And I still don't know what that is, but I'm just trying to make, I'm just trying to make it yeah, right. Mentally, yeah. how's your headspace at the moment? Not not good to be honest. Today um, today was one of my worst days. Um, if I'm going to be totally honest, I coming home from my brother's place today, I just wanted to go and shoot myself in the head. Yeah. Man, that's rough. Yeah, I mean, this is going to pass, though. This is this is going to pass. These, um, yeah, yeah. You just have to hang in there, right? Have you, you got? Yeah, you got good support and, networks um, over there. Not really. Um, my brother's a little bit pissed off too because I know, and this was the worst thing for me because I knew that it won't just be affecting me. It will affect him. It will affect my sister-in-law, his wife, because they're both athletes. And I don't. I just don't know, like how to how to help or how to do anything anymore. Yeah, that's... yeah so difficult. To, <laughs> difficult to listen to that and not have some level of empathy and sympathy for mm. his situation. You can see yeah. the and the desperation. And uh, he, yeah, even wow. if you absolutely condemn doping. Mm. Once you've caught the guy, he's gone. Yeah. Now he's a doper. He's he's, he's out. Yeah. Now you can stop like kicking him. And, yeah. And like pummeling him. You know what I mean? Like mm. he doesn't need it anymore. Yeah. He's doing it to himself. I suppose so many it, people will say, "Well, he's you know, as you said right at the start of the this section." You know, he, he, a lot of people will say, "Well, he deserved it. You shouldn't be doping." But I hope there's some context. Yeah, but you see, that we've got what we he gathered through this. What he deserves is a ban. Yes. And he deserves three more years for the lie and the fabrication stuff. Nobody deserves to mm. believe they should shoot themselves in the head. No, no that's, exactly. that's like, talk mm. about disproportionate. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. crazy. Sad story indeed, a tragic story, I think, and many of them are, do exist in the world of sports. And uh, yeah, very sad to hear that one. Anyway, moving on to something equally as controversial, but uh, maybe not as sad, I suppose for a lot of athletes it is. But World Athletics coming out this uh, this last week with a mm. big uh, statement about, first of all, transgender athletes, second of all, DSD athletes. Lots of changes in terms of the uh, events it now um, affects and how they've dealt with this. So just give us a bit of a praise here about what uh, Sir Seb Coe had to say. Yeah, so this was known. It was going to happen. It was announced yes. months back that they were going to make an announcement in March. And last week, Thursday, leading up to it, people were saying, here's the link, watch live. It was like a, it's like an Oscars award. Who's going to win? Who's <laughs> going to lose? Uh, what they've done is they've, they've, okay, two significant things. Number one is they have made the call that fairness in women's sport is the overarching principle. And as a consequence, given the lack of evidence that fairness can be guaranteed to women athletes when trans women enter women's sports, they are not going to allow that to happen. So trans women are, as of the 31st of March, excluded from women's athletics competitions. Mm. Now, that is the big discussion, and we'll get onto that in a moment. The second part of that was the announcement about DSDs, these differences of sex development, like Casta Semenya. You'll all know of a couple other names. 
the previous policy has now been updated. It no longer applies to a restricted band of events. It used to previously be between 400 and a mile. It's now from the long jump all the way through to the marathon and everything in between. Yeah. So that, that weird paradox that existed is gone. So that's in a sense a good thing. And the other change there is that the testosterone target for those athletes now needs to be 2.5, not 5. So they've tightened that and they've extended it. It's 24 months now that they have to lower their testosterone before being So for eligible. athletes like Cassius Semeni, essentially it is almost impossible to get back into the sport. Yeah, unless they agree to lower their testosterone. And remember, that yeah. used to happen until her court case decision came out. And then after that CAS decision on Semenya, pretty much all the athletes said, no, we're not going to lower our testosterone levels. And what they did, Nian Saba, for instance, went up to the 3,000 with great success, actually. Yes. She was the Diamond League champion over 5,000. And then some of the other athletes came down to the one and two. There are two Namibian sprinters who've got Olympic finals. And Mboma was, in fact, a silver medalist or bronze. I think silver might be bronze. I'll, you know, don't correct me. I'll correct myself after we recorded. Mm. Um, those athletes will now also have to suppress testosterone. So given that there's nowhere else for them to go, I imagine some of them will try the testosterone suppression route. Mm. A lot of them will say, no, we're not going to do that, in which case they can't compete anymore, anywhere in the, in the spectrum of field events all the way to marathon in women's events. They could, of course, go open or men's, but that's that's not going to happen. And that number, two and a half millimoles per litre, is it random? Is it based yeah. on what male testosterone levels are? It's a it's a little bit it's a little bit random. It's a little bit arbitrary. It, remember, in the very first iteration, it was ten. Yes, and that was based on the premise that that was the lower level of men, so they were in effect allowing these female athletes. And it was true for trance as well. That was their target also for a long time. Still is for some sports. Get it below the men's lower level, and you're good to go. Then it was changed to five for the at the time of the Semenya hearing, based on their own data that showed that that was two standard, five standard deviations, I think, higher than the mean in women. So that would make you a massively significant outlier. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't go lower than that because they wanted to exclude polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a condition that affects biological females, and they've got higher testosterone levels. And so they, they sort of try to draw a line that would not capture them. But now, because the policy recognizes the DSD conditions, it doesn't apply to females. Mm. So if you're a biological female, you can have PCOS and it doesn't really matter. But because it's a policy that applied to... And it's not even all DSDs, by the way. Like there's a... That's the one point... So how do, you do, how, then how do you define DSD then if it's not by measuring testosterone? Well, in this case, they've literally named the two. It's either alpha-5 reductase deficiency or androgen insensitivity syndrome. So these are two of the family of DSDs that are found in someone who is genetically male, so XY chromosomally. They have testes, but they're internal. The testes produce high testosterone levels, and then they get androgenized. So there's four things really there that go into it. But it's it's actually pretty basic to make the determination because you're dealing with someone who's chromosomally male with testes. Yeah. And then the testosterone is kind of a consequence of that, but it's not the issue that you're actually monitoring any longer. But it's obviously a subjective view as to whether you look at an athlete and say they are they are sus- well, they are suspect DSDs because you, right. you have to do an exam to to prove that. And this you? is you can't just look at somebody visually and say 
they may or may not be a DSD athlete. No, and in fact, I remember at the time of Semenya being on a couple of podcasts and people saying, what about this athlete? I said, mate, you've got no idea. That's that's like a biological female. And what you've done now is you've just judged by their appearance that they must be yes. male. And that's, don't go there. Do not do that. And similarly, I can guarantee listeners that there are some of these athletes who've competed and you didn't notice. Mm. You didn't know. Yeah. And so you cannot do it based on appearance. And in fact, in the court case in Lausanne in 20, geez, when was it, 1918? I lose track. Uh, that was one of the arguments that was made against the policy was that it required a subjective viewpoint of who needs to be looked at and who doesn't. And in the end, the court decided that that was reasonable. If you have a category and you've got to exclude certain people or regulate certain people, you, you need something like that. But it's one of the, it's one of the remaining messy pieces of that element, mm. the DSD case. I, my personal solution is that given we're now in a much more sophisticated and comprehensive anti-doping landscape, is when you provide anti-doping samples, just provide a sample with which you can do a genetic screen because very easily you can identify if someone's XY or XX. Mm. In very unusually rare cases, you will get a sample come back as XY in someone who should have been XX, like an effect of false positive. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to act on the genetic test. That's the screen. The screen indicates a need for further testing. And then you can do the further testing. That, that way you test everyone and there's never a risk of discrimination. Yeah. And you test them blindly. You basically have a lab technician looking under a microscope or looking at a chromosome type, mm. saying karyotyping and saying, here's a Y chromosome in an in a entrant in a woman's event. Right. Let's explore this further. You don't, you don't say ban them. Mm. You say, let's explore this further and see if there's a reason for it. So they're going to have to yeah. figure out the, but they the almost delivery have to do side that now of it. Yeah, because otherwise it's going to be people throwing, well, you're losing to somebody every single week, even if they don't seem like they could be, you're going to, you're going to yeah, say, well, please test these, them just in case. Exactly. You're going to get all these frivolous accusations <laughs> yes. and it gets very unpleasant yeah, very absolutely. fast. Mm. So they do, they need to get their thumb on that and not just DSDs. The same thing is going to happen with trans athletes because how do you, how do you prove someone's trans mm. when they've come in there at the age of 22? You got no, you know, we know Leah Thomas, the swimmer. We know Emily Bridges because it's been in the news. In time, you're going to have an athlete show up and there'll be no way to prove that this person is or isn't trans mm, based mm. on media reports. And, well, I say no way. In, in theory, there's, someone's going to know. But, yeah. but the way to get around this problem, in my opinion, is to have mandatory screening mm. followed by subsequent investigation in order to identify mm. a case. Well, let's hear uh, Sir Sebko um, and um, his very eloquent explanation of Water Athletics' new policies. Mm, And why why they did it. And then when that's done, we'll speak to Sean Engel um, and then maybe a few more thoughts on what it all means. The World Athletics Council has today taken the decisive action to protect the female category uh, in our sport uh, and to do so by restricting the participation of transgender and DSD athletes. The decision was taken in consultation with a number of stakeholders, including 40 member federations, our coaches, our athletes, and through the Athletes Commission, as well as a range of other community groups, including trans groups, UN experts, the International Olympic Committee, and para-athletics. Let me, if I may, start with the transgender athletes. The majority of those consulted uh, stated that transgender athletes should not be competing in the female category. 
Many believe there is insufficient evidence that trans women do not retain advantage over biological women and more, more evidence than any physical advantages have been ameliorated before they are willing to consider an option for inclusion into the female category. Unlike DSD athletes, there are no transgender athletes competing in international competition in athletics and no observations therefore exist uh, from the front line, in our case, the field of play, across the different disciplines that are specific to our sport, i.e. endurance running, sprints, throws, jumps, and road events. Where the science is insufficient to justify maintaining testosterone suppression for transgender athletes, the Council agreed it must be guided by our overarching principle, which is to protect the female category. <clears throat> We cannot, in all conscience, leave our transgender regulations as they were at five nanomoles per litre for at least one year, when we were unsure about the impact of doing so across all our disciplines. So we need to know more, and we need to know more now. The Council has agreed to exclude male to female transgender athletes who have been through male puberty from female world ranking competitions from March the 31st uh, this year. However, in order to do further research into our transgender eligibility guidelines, we will be establishing a working group whose remit will be to consult specifically with transgender athletes to seek views on competing in athletics, to review and maybe commission additional research where there is currently limited research and to put forward recommendations to council. The working group will include an independent chair, up to three council members, two athletes from the Athletes Commission, a transgender athlete from athletics, three representatives of our member federations and representatives of the World Athletics Health and Science Department. You can see that Sisebko is a, a politician by, uh, by nature and by history. Very eloquent uh, explanation. And uh, certainly whenever he presents at a press conference, you sense a real sense of authority and I think he's good for the sport in terms of that because he was an athlete himself as many of you will know. Um, interesting there that I, the one thing I didn't quite understand is he talks a little bit about and I'm just trying to phrase this correctly where he talks about the the need that that the prior the priority is to protect women's sport and he suggests that even though there is not entire the evidence is not exactly clear the priorities of women's sports in other words what he's saying is if there was more evidence, we would. That's great. But even though there's not a hundred percent evidence of the of the, the the fact that transgender athletes have a have a a benefit, that they're, they're going to default to the women's protecting a women's sport theory. Yeah, am I getting that correct? Yeah, and and this is in fact I think the most important part is the framing of this issue as mm. there is not sufficient evidence to allow for males to compete against women without unfair advantage. So in other words. We can't guarantee fairness to women, therefore we aren't going to allow it. Mm. As opposed to what the debate has been for the last 20 years is there's no evidence that it's unfair, so therefore allow it. Mm. Do, you, do you all understand? Yeah. And I'm speaking now to the listeners. This is a, this is a really important difference in how it's framed. Um, I, I would argue, though, as a, as a scientist, that there is in fact quite a lot of evidence that male advantage is A, real, B, large, and C, not removed by the suppression of testosterone. 
Like there are now 17 longitudinal studies where they've taken trans women and they've lowered their testosterone or knocked it out all together and then measured things like muscle volume, body fat percentage, bone density, muscle strength and power. And what those studies all find is whilst there is some reduction in that male advantage when you reduce testosterone, relative to how large it was to begin with, most of it persists. So the reduction is relatively smaller than the start point, the start yeah. difference. And it's on the basis of that that I would say that right now all the evidence, not some, all the evidence we have suggests that lowering testosterone does not remove male advantage and therefore performance differences. However, you also have to be honest about this and say none of those studies are in elite trans women athletes. Mm. So you can get clever here. I don't think it's actually all that clever, so let me put those in quotation marks, by trying to argue that an athlete will somehow lose more than a non-athlete. Mm. that an athlete will return to the female baseline, whereas a non-athlete doesn't. To me, that's utterly implausible. Mm. If anything, athletic training protects against the losses. There are studies showing that if you introduce strength training and testosterone suppression, you can actually stay as strong. You get no loss. So if anything, the trained athlete is likely to see less of a loss than the untrained. But but it's, it's, it's a granted limitation that these studies don't exist in elite athletes. So now the question is, well, what's a sport to do? If there's no evidence in elite athletes, what do we do? Do we say, come into the women's category and perform and compete and we'll try and find evidence? Or do we say, no, this is closed until such evidence exists. And that's what the World Athletics decision does. Yeah, That's what they've done. They've, they've said no longer are we going to invite this to happen until proven otherwise we're going to ask for it to be proven and then we'll consider doing it yeah majorly important yeah. difference it's a big difference that yeah big difference yeah. and so that's why it's a significant significant decision and uh you know it's not the f they're not the first um they're not even the second swimming they now join swimming mm. the policy very much the same and world rugby as the olympic sports there's a few others uk triathlon uh, uk cycling has said the same thing World cycling haven't, world triathlon haven't. Now, but now triathlon's in a situation where two thirds of their sport has got a policy different to them. Yeah. How is that tenable? Yeah. You cannot imagine saying you're illegal, illegal in the swim. You're okay on the bike, but you're illegal <laughs> in the run. That's the situation. Thanks to the flaccid leadership of the IOC. Yeah, that's yeah. where we are. Yeah, exactly. Because the IOC still, and there was a conference. The IOC held a, a symposium on the same day as this announcement where they just rolled out one trans advocate after the next to help sports implement their guideline. <laughs> they have not yet heard or given voice to women athletes being consulted. Mm. And what you just heard from Sebastian Coe, and one of the things I wish they would do, if I have a criticism, it's this. He said the majority of those we consulted did not want trans women in female sport, right? What mm. does that mean? Is that 51%? <coughs> is it 80 plus percent yes, he doesn't give numbers yeah because yeah. in swimming it's 80 plus mm. we know that because they you can imagine it's numbers. probably similar in athletics i would be very surprised if it was below 80 yeah so yeah. Yeah. In, in rugby it was in the high mm. 60s 70s and 30 percent saying we're unsure until mm. we know more mm. and we knew no more and if they're informed they'll be in the 80s so mm. so and I, and I tweeted this the other day actually is for all this scientific talk and the here's the evidence from 16 studies and this is why male female difference female sport is necessary because of these biological differences nothing has shifted this debate more mm. than the active voice of women expressing their 
right to a closed sporting space. Mm. That's why this decision was made. Mm. Not the science. The science is cool because it backs those women up. Yeah. It's the foundation maybe on which they stand. But until now, it's been a foundation without a speaker. Mm. <laughs> and now what's happened is women have found their voice. They've told athletics very strongly, we will not or we do not want this. And that's what gives athletics the mandate to do the Which is kind of what we said, a couple, right thing. we said a couple of weeks ago in a podcast saying that, that, that the, the women's sport needs to be vocal here. Yes. Because they're the ones being affected. It's no point in governing bodies saying, well, we need, we should do this. Women's sport needs to say, it's about us guys mm. and girls. Mm. It's not about uh, being anti. Because I think when I think about these issues and you think to, and you talk to the average man on the street, that it's very easy to be confused between what people think is a transgender athlete versus a somebody who has chosen a different gender versus their uh, versus their sexualities or versus their biological gender. Biological sex, yeah. Yeah, so... so there's this confusion as to that. So a lot of people think, well, a transgender athlete is somebody who's just identifying as mm. a woman. No. And I think that's where the confusion comes in because that's what the initial reaction is. But I think what's in- important to get across in these sort of things is to, is to understand the biology here mm. rather than just the gender identification. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's, where, that's where the science has helped. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't want to downplay the fact that the science matters, but I've got no doubt that like scientists like me, we could have spoken about this for the next 50 years and nothing would change. Mm. It was only when women put their shoulder onto this thing and started pushing mm. that it shifted it. And I'm thinking now like of the likes of there was a shot put athlete, Amelia Stricker, the Emily Diamond. A lot of them, when World Athletics first published its preferred option beginning of the year, remember they said mm. 2.5 for 24 months. Those athletes then said, hang on a moment here. We know enough to know that that's not going to take away male advantage. Mm. And because of that, we're now going to reject the, the notion. And then that gave voice to a couple more, then a couple more, then a couple more. And now there's a lot of them. It was the same thing you saw with cycling in England last year, this time, I think it was, when Bridges was going to compete. And all of a sudden, that remember that very successful women's cycling program, the decorated program that won so many medals on the track? They said no. And then people listened for the first time mm. because they had they had the gravitas to say no to this. Mm. Women athletes are so scared to speak. Yeah. Just got a message on on Patreon um, now, not even from an athlete, just from some someone in the corporate space within sports, who has said exactly the same thing to me. Her name is Anna Anna Saw, who said, "I'm not going to comment on this. I don't dare speak up because it's such a heated debate, mm. and it's really difficult for us to do that without being persecuted for it." Totally, yeah. So the bravery of those women who finally managed to to be heard is what has changed this. On the other hand of this, on the other side of the coin is the IOC who's not yet heard them. It, mm. it actively ignores them. And what's happened is over 20 years, this debate has happened in secret. It's mm. happened quietly in the back halls. And it's happened because the trans advocates were shouting very loudly and the women were not at all. And that mm. situation's changed. And that's why this decision was reached. Mm. And now, you know, this is the this is the biggest sport in the Olympic Games. It joins the second biggest sport, swimming. I'm not going to be so brazen as to say rugby's the third biggest sport, but rugby's there. Mm. And surely now, mm. surely now people will start saying, okay, there's enough basis to actually protect women's sport and give them what they what they deserve. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's get into our second interview uh, with a gentleman who is a regular feature on the show and uh, get in for some of his insights. Right, Sean Engel, the chief sports writer for The Guardian. Welcome again to our show. We always uh, enjoy having you on with a very uh, 
since you're at the coalface of many of these stories happening at the moment. So we've heard the, the comment from Sebco and, and some of the details. What's what's your been your reaction to it? Uh, um, because it is quite a, a big step for a, a World Federation to almost lead from the frontier and maybe all federations will follow with this kind of decision. Uh, well, it was it was a surprise. Remember back in, in January, um, World Athletics uh, advocated a preferred option that would have seen um, those wanting uh, transgender women wanting to compete to having to reduce their testosterone by 2.5 nanomils for, for 24 months. However, uh, that was completely rejected by the people uh, I speak to uh, when this was brought up. The mood in the room was, no, this isn't right. We shouldn't we shouldn't do this. And hence this this new policy, which from the end of this month bans um, transgender women from a female competition. Uh, what's quite interesting is that among the people I've spoken to, there wasn't the same mood when it came to athletes with a, a difference of a sex development. There it was seen that athletes such as Casa Semenya and, and many others um, now, they, um, through an accident really of, of when they were born, being reported as as female, not male, uh, it wasn't really, they hadn't made that choice and therefore there should be some consideration for that and therefore they are still allowed to compete, but they have uh, have to reduce their testosterone for for, for 24 months um, to do so. Mm. Sean, like you said, surprised. I mean, I messaged you when it came out on Thursday and I was equally surprised. I really thought that they were going to announce what had been either leaked or planted back in January. Was it a was it a masterstroke of public consensus to release that preferred option back at the beginning of the year? Seb Coe spoke about it as we put it out there wanting to stimulate discussion and debates. Is that was that really by design or did they put it out there and then actually get surprised by the blowback, do you think? I I would I would suspect they uh, it was probably quite clever politics. You have to remember that 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 Seb Coe has been a, a senior a British politician. He's been around the corridors of international sport as well for a long, long time. Um, he would have sensed, I guess, that most, well, certainly most women athletes he would have spoken to would have told him their opinion, and most federations would have felt the same way. Uh, he also would have known that the IOC's position is much more, um, let's be in inclusive. Um, so by almost putting out what cycling have already done and saying, well, look, this is our preferred option. What do you think? he probably knew what they thought and therefore was able mm. to say, well, we presented people with option A, but they preferred option B. So that's what we're going with. Do you have any insights as to what that consultation involved at the press conference? And we've just heard it. He spoke about consulting a number of stakeholders, both within and from outside the sport, but unlike swimming, which, which literally had a, remember they had that special meeting and they showed results pie chart saying in favor and against and it was like 82 percent against the inclusion in female sport we haven't seen that from athletics do you have a sense for what they did i i well only the fact they did speak to lots and lots of, of different people from from athletes to coaches to federations to transgender groups uh over this sort of two-month consultation um what is surprising is that on, on background they asked perhaps saying, look, it was overwhelming. There wasn't really much, um, wasn't much of a, 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 a um, you know, a sort of a, a pushback here. And and again, speaking to female athletes I and coaches I've done for years privately, that, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, athletes are afraid to speak out on this issue because they feel they'll lose contracts, they'll be targeted 
Uh, we remember the British athlete, uh, Lindsay Sharp, who finished six in the Olympic Games in 2016, at 800 metres behind three athletes with a DSD. She essentially said, you know, there were two races going on here and, and, and the amount of social media abuse she got was, was, you know, was, was overwhelming. So you can understand why. Um, uh, but it, yeah, so it's, 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 it's interesting that we, we got to this point where perhaps in January, we, we didn't think so. And I think that was a lot down, down to, to Coe's quite clever strategic planning, really. Mm. I'm always interested that when you have Sib Coe involved in this the comment you just made is that his experience of politics has obviously made him quite good, for want of a better word, at getting involved and dealing with these sort of things, which which makes you believe that maybe what, that's why World Athletics is kind of leading the way with a lot of these discussions, a lot of these uh, sort of rulings. Uh, well, I mean, Co was in the Conservative Party Whip's office. And Whip's office, um, for those who don't know, are essentially they compel the members of parliament to vote with the government. And that can involve a lots of arm twisting, <laughs> lots of, you know, you better do this, lots of rewarding people, you know, for, for doing, you know, what you want them to do. So he's he's aware of, um, you know, the arts of, of the game. And, uh, and but, but you know, he, you know, he's a, a smart bloke. He would, and he also have been aware that actually people in the sport wanted this to happen. And, and so actually he was probably, you know, pushing against an open door already. Yeah, I was just going to, say that in this instance it's not so much whipping your own constituents to make a certain decision it's just make them aware of all the voices that are in play when they do make that decision and it seems to me that the in my opinion the mistake and it's it's i think it's deliberate that the isc continues to make is it does not listen to women you know the isc has regularly rolled out advocates on one side of the issue only and they will not they will not in fact they actively try not to listen to the voice of women because they know the 80 percent that swimming heard from the majority world rugby heard the majority co said they heard from will tell them something that they don't actually want to hear and so in a sense co's job was easy all he had to do was open the conversation and then record the responses and now no, nobody's going to go against 80 80 plus percent agreement, no. you know so Actually, in that regard, it's it's clever, but it's also the most obvious thing. Just listen. Yeah. Listen, and you'll get to the, the answer that people want. Do you, do you, I mean, Sean, do you think that that's it? I mean, there's, there's, it's like, well, there's no more discussion now. It's it's decisions made. There's no real room for maneuver for any athletes really here. And it's kind of a line in the sand that's been drawn. There's, it, the, this, the conversation is essentially over. Uh, if only it was that simple. Um <laughs> You have you have to remember that uh, the uh, World Athletics is scarred by what happened with them with with Caster Semenya had a very costly legal fight over a million dollars uh, to try and sort of back up uh, their case. Um, they you know as Ross knows you know, better, better than me you know it was a long drawn out process. Cass was very hot on um, the need for sports federations to do stuff that was considered fair, reasonable, and proportionate. I think was the was the phrase they used. So um the World Athletics have thought about this very closely and 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 co-admitted at the press conference last week that there is the possibility that you know there could be some legal action. What I would say at the same time though, the IOC and its transgender rulings uh towards the end of 2021, they it was a curious document because on the one hand it said it should be up to the sports to decide. Uh but on the other, it sort of very much seemed to steal them. Uh, towards 
be as inclusive as possible um, unless you have specific science that tells you otherwise. And as things stand, we don't have science, you know, or scientific studies on trans, elite transgender athletes that have done, you know, that have competed at the highest level and then reduced their testosterone. But we do have, you know, I think 17 longitude studies that suggest that even when you do reduce testosterone, you keep a lot of your advantages, which I'm sure Ross will be able to elaborate on. And But for the IOC, that wouldn't be enough. But for, you know, world athletics, I think it clearly is. Even if that even if that wasn't enough, though, Sean, and you would have noticed the language Co used is he was very clear about saying that in the absence of this evidence, compelling evidence that you can remove male advantage, our default position will be to defend the female category. The overarching principle is fairness. And so he was basically shifting the burden 180 degrees from how it's traditionally framed and saying, if you come with evidence that that advantage can be removed, then athletes will consider the option. I think he literally used that word. The, the option would be considered if the evidence existed. Mm. Everyone else seems to somehow be thinking that we should allow these males into women's sports unless it can be shown that they do yeah. have, you know, like it's, it's the wrong way around. Completely upside down. And this is, okay, they're not the first sport to do it. Like swimming did it. World rugby was there in 2020. So they're not the first to do it, but it's being the cornerstone of the Olympic Games. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said, track and field is the big Olympic. That's why this is worthy of a podcast episode. But that reframing, I get the impression that even in the absence of evidence, they now have a position. And you'd have to somehow, if there was a legal challenge, you'd have to reverse the burden. And that's what the lawyers will try and do now. They'll say that it is disproportionate Mm. on the basis of no evidence. And that's where the tension tension will exist, I think. So, Sean, when you're doing these sort of stories, I mean, do you are there transgender groups that you get hold of to get reaction from them about these sort of things? Yes, that, yeah, them. yeah, absolutely. And as you can imagine, well, there there are there are strong um, on 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 both sides. So, you know, I spoke to uh, Stonewall um, here in the UK, and there was also athlete um, athletes ally, I think, who are. You know, a, a group abroad, but yeah, Stonewall essentially said, you know, it is so disappointing to see World Athletics announce a unilateral ban on trans women in track and field events. Uh, that's obviously not quite true because it's only the female category. And then you know, there's you know, they say there's no specific evidence to justify the ban. Uh, we stand with trans people who have now the door closed on their chance to compete in athletic sports at an international level. Again, that's not exactly true um you know the, the the male category is open as well but um so that would that was a stonewall's uh, response yeah and there have been a few like it athlete allies a group from canada which among other things once got a survey of athletes defunded and stopped from happening because they said it was misgendering and we'll have more on that in a moment but basically there was a survey going out about males in women's sport you know biological sex you're male mm. <laughs> And they block that from ever happening. Mm. So that's the contribution they make to open debate and knowledge knowledge generation. So this is the so this is the problem we sit with, and it's nice that we've gotten to the point where we can actually say, "Hang on, Stonewall, this is not a ban on athletes in sport. This is the regulation of a category within a sport." You know, yeah. and that's the, the 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 dishonest framing of it is just so tiresome. But I think most people now are seeing through it that four or five years ago would have said, "Oh yeah, this is an outright mm. ban." Yeah, it's not. Yeah, mm. great stuff, Sean. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, sorry. sorry I, I wanted to just ask you about mm. the DSD, Sean, because obviously here in South Africa, big issue with Semenya. You alluded to that earlier. They've now gone with a testosterone reduction policy in the DSDs, whereas in the trans women, it's a complete removal. 
uh, or complete exclusion from women's sport, which as the listeners will gather, we agree with. Do you reckon they've got a problem coming in the fact that they treat them differently? It's a good question because conceptually, uh, we are we are talking about male bodies in female sport. So they mm. are, you know, appreciating society, there's all sorts of different issues there. So it is it is interesting that they're two separate policies for essentially what, what what's what's the same the same thing um but again i think that's from people i've spoken to that was the the consensus inside council what will be interesting i think is be, the fact they've said look we've set up um, a body a panel that's going to look at all this stuff i think that's perhaps one way they're trying to stop legal challenges from cas they're sort of saying look we're going to keep monitoring this we're going to keep we're going to speak to different people. We're going to listen. We're going to, you know, we're going to take soundings from transgender athletes to see what we can do. Mm. Uh, but Co did say as well, you know, I made this point to the council that all the decisions we have taken have their challenges. They have medical yeah. challenges. They have scientific challenges. They have legal challenges. They certainly have communication challenges. But he said, mm. he said, you know, if, if people challenge you legally, what would you do? And he said, if that is the case, we will then do what we've done in the past, which is vigorously defend our position. And the overarching principle for me is that we'll always do what we think is in the best interest of our sport. So it was quite strong words from Co. I think, on that. Yeah, I was struck by that. And, and the other thing I'd add to that is if they hadn't made a decision, in other words, if they'd left both policies the same, they still would have had a legal challenge. It just would have come from a different quarter. <laughs> and that's the thing they also always forget, is that if you, if you allow inclusion of trans women, the legal challenge is going to come from females. So actually... You can't make a call or no non-call based on your fear of legal case because there's one, there's a legal case irrespective. You just have to choose which direction it's running in. Mm. The other so, thing I guess is that, that we had the World Rugby introduced their policy in 2020. We've had swimming now and International Rugby League. As far as I'm aware, no one has tried to sue swimming or uh, the Rugby um, Football League Federation since they announced their policies last year. So maybe... What athletes will look at that and think, well, actually, um, the fact there hasn't been, uh, people aren't going to cast for this yet, makes them a little bit more more confident. But I guess what's interesting there is that World Rugby was more of a guideline, whereas World Athletics is almost an instruction. There's a difference in the way that World Rugby has presented that. They're saying, well, we're suggesting that, whereas Athletics are saying, we're not doing that. That's a really good point. So look, let's, let's say now it's in South Africa and Athletics South Africa, our governing body puts on a meeting in Stellenbosch. Yeah. Could Castus and Lenya run in that without lowering testosterone? It's not a it's not a world athletics sanctioned event. Could she compete in it? Well, if she's with under the Athletics South Africa banner, then they are under the World Athletics banner. Therefore, she has to compete under the world of World Athletics because they're a subsidiary of them. That's that's what she has to do. So I'm assuming if it's a yeah. local federation, they would have do to you, abide by the same rules. Do, do you know, Sean? I mean, I well, it's I, it's I, it's international events is um, yeah. what I'd like. So I, I, I mean, obviously, uh, world champs and and diamond leagues and and golden spikes would be all considered national events. Whether it's a local meet, um, there I I suspect there is more more leeway. Um, yeah. I don't quite know where the line is yeah. drawn with those things. I'd be very surprised that the, if a local federation made a different decision to the global federation considering they are bound to be their representative in that country so yeah, yeah interesting true. i mean yeah. i'll, I'll, I'll want to see what's happened in canada for instance yeah well uh, and and the us for that matter i mean ncaa they'll they'll keep 
going now. Yeah. Now ignore world athletics. But then that athlete will never be eligible to represent the US in a in a global meet or as an individual. Maybe maybe there's a difference in a I don't know. That's actually a really good point. Is I'm not sure mm. how low the policy goes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Sean, I know you're going to keep an eye on it. I know you've got a lot on your plates at the moment with various stories in British sport at the moment. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, as always. So again, thanks very much to Sean Ingle for uh, it's a great insight into what is happening in that uh, front at the moment. So big thank you to Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, and Sean, and uh, lots of things to talk about today. Of course, the transgender thing we've just got through and uh, that very interesting doping case. We hope you've enjoyed our episode today. And from us for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.